Welcome into TYT's The Conversation, it is your host, Adrian Lawrence. And today I'd like to welcome in the authors of None of the Above, the untold story of the Atlanta public schools cheating scandal, corporate greed and the criminalization of educators. I'm gonna welcome in Anna Simonton, the interim development director of the effort to relaunch the appeal and Shawnee Robinson, the advocate for troubled youth and their families. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yes, so I know it has been quite the journey, particularly with this untold story of the Atlantic public schools cheating scandal. And so kind of to bring everybody up to speed, Anna, can you tell us a little bit about what this scandal and controversy has been about? Yes, a lot of folks might remember this from 2015 when 11 black educators were convicted on racketeering and conspiracy charges, RICO. Um, these are charges that were originally designed to prosecute mobsters, but they were being leveled at educators in the Atlanta public schools system for allegedly changing answers on standardized tests. So something that is had never been um, treated as a crime before, uh, cheating has become widespread in the years since policies like No Child Left Behind, the George W. Bush era policy that punished schools that didn't increase test scores each year. So even though cheating has become widespread across the country, it has typically been dealt with with consequences such as revoking teaching licenses, at most misdemeanors that come with community service. But here in Atlanta, teachers were, that they threw the book at teachers. And it really caused outrage when those convictions were handed down. In the meantime, educators, some of the educators have been appealing their case. And right now there's been a new development, the Georgia Supreme Court rejected the appeal of one of those educators, a former principal, Dana Evans. And she's now facing prison unless a trial judge agrees to modify her sentence. Judge Jerry Baxter has the power to change the sentence to time served or other alternatives to prison. And so advocates are now calling on him to do just that and to keep educators out of prison. And Shani, I know you focus on essentially advocating for troubled youth and their families. Can you share with us how has this scandal really impacted the education system, particularly when it comes to these troubled youth? Well, I think it's been devastating, more particularly as far as teachers are concerned. The way we were treated during the investigation was completely horrible. When the GBI investigators came into the schools, teachers were pulled out of their classrooms. And in most cases, there was no attorney present. They were asked to sign a pre-voluntary statement form that was later used against many of them when we were charged with racketeering. And so it's been devastating. And I think what a lot of people don't know is that we were charged with, we were we were charged with RICO for allegedly cheating on our students test to get bonus money. That was the mainstream narrative. It was a flat out lie. The One of the lead investigators actually testified on the witness stand that bonus money provided little incentive to cheat. And so during the closing arguments, One of the prosecutors told the jury that even though many of us did not receive any bonus money, we could be charged with racketeering due to our salaries. They said that our salaries can be considered US currency. And so this case, it's pretty scary. I think it will set a precedent for 
other cases to come that you can be classified as a racketeer simply by being gainfully employed. And you know, most people have to work, they have jobs. And so it's really important that people really look at this case because I think there are going to be more and more people that will be over criminalized. Yes, and it seems like it would set a precedent that really strays from Previous precedent, essentially, uh, you know, because I think you're absolutely right in terms of the fact that people work, people have an income, uh, and so to say that you are doing, uh, you're engaging in this activity to get this extra benefit, uh, when no, this is just kind of the standard every day of how things operate. It doesn't seem to really flow with how things should go legally. And so, kind of to hop back on that legal conversation, Anna, you had talked about that new development here and the chances of getting that trial court judge to actually alter the sentence. What are we looking at? How likely is that to be the case? I think it's possible. This is a judge who has been open to conversation in some circumstances. When sentences were first handed down, initially he denied an appeal bond for educators. And so they would have already been locked up were it not for him changing his mind at that point and seeing reason in that circumstance. So I do think that that there is an opportunity here for people to speak out and make it clear that the community does not support this sentence. And it's a year in prison for Dana Evans followed by probation unless this is modified and Shawnee and her other co-defendants are sort of behind Evans in line. So her case advanced first to the point that it's at, but this could happen to other educators as well unless we bring a resolution to this case now. Yes, and Shawnee, when it comes to other educators and really kind of just getting people's awareness and getting people to understand what's going on and how this can impact them, have you seen a lot of receptivity? Absolutely, I think educators have been some of my biggest supporters in this. Um, unfortunately, when all of this happened, I heard from several people that they were too afraid to get into education. They were, you know, afraid to become a classroom teacher. And so, you know, but we need good classroom teachers. Um, but definitely, I, I'm hopeful that even the, the teachers' union could get more involved. Um, they've been surprisingly quiet about this while educators, teachers have gone off to prison for RICO. Um, we'd like to just see more involvement and people to take a stance on this matter. And Shawnee, why do you think that they have been quiet, the union? You know, I can only speculate, <laughs> um, but I will just say there was a, this was a lot of there was a lot of politics involved in this and um, political pressure coming from several angles. Um, but it's time to end this case, it's been going on for practically a decade now. So there's no reason for my um, co-defendant Dana Evans or any of us to have to go to prison during a pandemic. We've been on an appeal bond for the past nine years. We have not gotten in any trouble, we are not a threat to society. They could easily say time served, do some community service, at the very most wear an ankle monitor. You know, this feels almost like a personal vendetta against us from the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. 
Yes, and so as I understand the DA there, Fannie Willis, who's been essentially making headlines a lot recently with prosecuting or potentially prosecuting Donald Trump. Now, when it comes to, I guess, getting something from their office in terms of any kind of support or change or advocacy, Anna, has there been any change in their sentiment? Not that we're aware of, there's still time. Um, and there's an organization called Abolitionist Teaching Network that has a petition right now that folks can sign calling on the judge, uh, Fonnie Willis, and uh, Judge Jerry Baxter and District Attorney Fonnie Willis, and other elected officials who could be powerful in taking a stance. Uh, Georgia politics have really changed in the past few years. You know, we have two Democratic senators now who could speak out. Um, there's really an opportunity for folks to take another look at this case and do what's right. No, absolutely, that would definitely seem to be the case, especially as we're seeing on a national level with there being a scarcity when it comes to teachers, but also having educators being under attack when honestly, it's just, it's nonsense across the board, whether it's critical race theory or um, you know mask mandates. Uh, but I'd love to also kind of shift when you, hear that conversation going on and you see that with critical race theory. How does all of this kind of culminate for you, Shawnee? You know, some of the conversations that I have seen, um, it's really quite disappointing when I um, just hear some of the negative things that people have said about teachers um, regarding critical race theory. Um, I think it's important that we, you know, Teach our children the truth about um, our past, the history, um, and so I, you know, unfortunately, I can see just critical race theory and um, teaching critical race theory as another way to possibly punish educators and, <clears throat> excuse me, and criminalize them. And so I'm hoping that doesn't happen, but. After what happened to us, it's, you know, I can just kind of see it, I can see it coming. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely seems to be the case, especially as we see a lot of states passing laws that do try to seek to punish individuals. If, for example, in Florida, they make white students or people feel uncomfortable, so on and so forth. It should be something that people are paying attention to. And so, Anna, I know you talked about there being a petition out there to change sentiments and hopefully just, you know, shift in position for the judge there. How is that going so far? Um, so far, it's uh, spreading and folks can find it um, by going to teacherontrial.com or following the Abolitionist Teaching Network on social media. And um, the more folks you know, spreading the word, the better chance we have. That's great. And also, um, Shawnee, when it comes to essentially what's next for you, in addition to trying to get more insight about how you know essentially your future can hopefully be changed when it comes to this judge in particular. But when you see all of these educators in need, I guess, is there anything you're able to do? Well, I can just continue to tell my story. And I'm hoping that by sharing my story, I can serve as an advocate for these educators. Absolutely, and if people wanna learn more about you all, in addition to picking up your book, None of the Above, where can they get that information? They can go to our website, teacherontrial.com. Fantastic, is there any place on social media they can also find you to follow your journey? I'm also on social media at Shawnee Author. Fantastic, and Anna? I'm at Anna F. Simonton. 
not super catchy, but that's where I am. All right, that works. Well, I definitely want to thank you both for joining us. They're the authors of None of the Above, The Untold Story of the Atlanta Public Schools Cheating Scandal, Corporate Greed, and the Criminalization of Educators. Anna Simonton, who's also trying to bring back the appeal, and I hope it works out. And Shawnee Robinson, an advocate and outspoken speaker for troubled youth and their families. Thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome back to the conversation. It's still Adrian Lawrence. And this time I'm joined by the staff writer at the New Republic covering law, democracy, and the courts. That is Matt Ford. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, so woof, wow. Last week was a stunning one with 83-year-old Justice Breyer essentially announcing his retirement after 27 years on the bench. And Biden is promising to uphold his promise of essentially putting a black woman in his place. Essentially, you said this gives cause for hope, even if he were to put a Democratic leaning judge on the bench, it'd still be a conservative majority. So why should we be hopeful? Well, I think the reason for hope is that this really takes one thing off the Democrats' plate to worry about. After the experience with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the sort of unfortunate timing of her passing, the court really shifted far to the right. and. Now with Breyer stepping aside for a younger replacement, implicitly for a younger replacement, that gives more of an opportunity for somebody younger to come on the bench and stay there for a long time. It won't be enough, of course, to reverse the tide that the court has drifted rightward, but it helps ensure that it won't won't get any worse for Democrats. Oh well, that's kind of a good thing. Although it's interesting because, in my thought, it couldn't get any worse, but I think it possibly could, especially when it comes to the confirmation process. And you know, we have that Senate Judiciary Committee that's essentially split 11-11 Dems and Republicans. But I guess, do you see that that complicating? See that complicating anything? It could pose one small hiccup. You know, they, it could be hard for them to discharge it if they only have, you know, as you say, eleven Democratic votes. But there is a way around that. The majority leader can file what's known as a discharge petition, sort of to bring them out of the committee and and put it on the Senate floor. If he does that, it's just a clean fifty votes, no filibuster, no nothing. Oh, well, that would be good, of course, if you know there aren't people like Joe Manchin out there. But I think there is already kind of talk on the streets. The thought that Joe Manchin hasn't necessarily essentially voiced any objection to proceeding with an Amy Coney Barrett type of process here. Are you hearing anything? No, I mean, one of the things that's that's really been remarkable about this is that, you know, obviously Joe Manchin's been a thorn in the side of Democrats on, on a lot of policy issues. But when it comes to judicial nominees, and Biden has gotten a lot of them confirmed over the last year, they haven't he hasn't been a roadblock at all. He's voted for every single one of Biden's nominees. We don't know of any instances where he's he sort of played a behind the scenes role in, in nixing them. As far as you know, Democratic policy interests go, he seems to be on board. All right, well, I guess it's kind of a fingers crossed situation because Lord knows he has been a thorn in the thigh for a bit now. <laughs> but in terms of those who are essentially potential candidates for that whole lifetime position, I guess, are there any front runners? Well, one is Katanji Brown Jackson. She's on the DC Circuit Court of Appeals. She's young, she's experienced, and she was placed on the DC Circuit by President Biden. That was one of the first nominations he made this term. Now, the DC Circuit, because it's here in Washington, because it deals with a lot of cases involving federal policy, it's often considered to be the second most important court in the land. And so for Biden to place her there, it's certainly a vote of confidence in her favor for being the nominee. Now, there are others. There's also Leandra Kruger. She's a justice on the California Supreme Court. She's widely respected. 
and she would be a sort of another choice that, that could be sort of outside the federal appellate courts where a lot of Supreme Court nominees usually come from. But the president might opt for somebody with a different professional background. Yeah, and I think that that would be wise. Just, you know, if we're gonna add some flavor to the court, let's go ahead and spice it up, which would be good. And I'm a California girl, so I rep from a state, and that's a, you know. That's just where I stood. But um, all right, so in terms of bringing these individuals on, how do you think that they're going to be received by the existing court? You know, We've already heard uh, the whispers, the very loud whispers of individuals like Gorsuch being unwilling to cater to the only uh, woman of color on the court, uh, Sotomayor in terms of wearing a mask in the event of her diabetes, even though they like to dispute things that happened. Uh, But I guess, how do you think the court will respond? Well, in terms of personal dynamics, you know, about a hundred years ago, the court was a much more hostile place. There were reports of justices who wouldn't even talk to one another, who would open a newspaper when they were asking questions of a, of a lawyer. It used to be a lot worse. Now, nowadays, the court likes to project sort of an outward air of collegiality, and and you're right, that's sort of been punctured in recent days and sort of disputed in recent days about just how much they get along. But I think that the justices do have an interest in in preserving sort of a united front. For the conservatives, there's an interest in making sure that they're seen as sort of the rule followers, that they're not being too extreme in appearance, even though their rulings may say otherwise. They want to keep up that appearance. And for the liberals, you know, they, they, though they do are a minority, they're not as as out of power as it might seem. And in some lesser known cases, obviously on abortion rights, they're they're not going to probably sway any of the justices, but they might have hope that they could sway others. So both sides have an interest in sort of maintaining a level of collegiality there. Absolutely, and it should be rather interesting because I know that essentially. Um, you know, newbies to the court, they honestly oftentimes can have a chip on their shoulder and can vote in ways to kind of try to maybe dispel certain sentiments about their partisanship. And so it makes me wonder how would this individual being the first black woman on the Supreme Court actually respond, especially given this whole, let's say social media era we live in. How do you think things could possibly go? Well, ideally, it wouldn't factor into their mindset at all. Uh, Judges are not supposed to decide cases on that basis, but judges are human. Uh, And so there might be a certain attempt to zig or zag uh, where that goes. Now, we've seen that from Trump's nominees. We've seen Kavanaugh and Barrett sort of surprised from time to time uh, on sort of lesser uh, priority issues. Uh, It's possible that we could see Biden's nominee uh, pull something similar, but I wouldn't expect to see it on something that's really of a core belief to them. Maybe on procedural aspects, maybe on sort of the sideline things. Uh, But most judges, they have reached the Supreme, when they reach the Supreme Court, they have closely held beliefs and they are often willing to stick to them. Yes, that's something I I believe I initially saw to some extent with Sandra Day O'Connor. Definitely RBG until she hit a certain, uh, let's say, age or tenure on the court, and then she just started to go more rogue and do her own thing, which is great. Uh, you know, you wish that a lot of more of these judges would recognize that this is a lifetime position and they do not need to listen to Twitter and they should just do with what their gut says or what their, I guess, intellectual legal gut says and not necessarily fear any kind of pushback. But I really don't necessarily know how that could be taken. But in terms of taking the path that would maybe help kind of balance the country and also restore more sense of maybe confidence in the court. Do you think having this new potential appointee be it in terms of what the nation needs to feel like the court is more balanced? 
I'd like to think it would help. Uh, you know, the Supreme Court uh, has sort of a unique responsibility over the American Constitution. And the Constitution, by definition, is supposed to represent all of us in a way that Congress and the presidency don't necessarily always do. Only one person at a time can do that. But the Supreme Court has sort of a collective responsibility there. Now, obviously, every nominee who's going to go before the Supreme Court is going to be well qualified, they're going to be experienced. But it's not wrong for people to want more. It's not wrong for people to want a greater diversity of backgrounds, of experiences, of sort of the life that they've lived and formed, whether it's professional, whether it's personal. That makes the court stronger. I think the best counter to it example is Justice Neil Gorsuch. Now, Gorsuch is known as a conservative, but he's also a Westerner. He also spent a lot of time on the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers a lot of sort of Western states. And from there, he's actually turned out to be sort of a very prominent voice on Native American issues and in favor of tribal sovereignty. Now, obviously, a justice with an even more diverse background than him might have different perspectives. But that's one of the virtues of having nine justices instead of one or three is that you can create a court that brings all those perspectives together. Yes, and that'd be something that would be truly reflective of individuals and the diversity and the reach of our nation. And so having more representation is definitely a good thing in terms of thought, intellectual mind. But oftentimes you don't get it as much in terms of class as you essentially have a bench of a number of Ivy Leaguers or whatnot. But hopefully this new pick will diversify. And in terms of possibly who's next on the bench, you know, you had 83 year old Breyer, I think he's the oldest one left and who could be coming behind him even if in a few years? Well, the next oldest justice after Breyer would be Justice Clarence Thomas. Now he was confirmed in 1990, I'm sorry, 1991. He's been there for a long time as well. But Thomas has said that he's willing to stick it out as long as it takes. He's willing to die in the court. He's told friends and associates that he wants to stay on there as long as it takes to get what he wants to accomplish done. Uh, now, of course, anything could happen. Health reasons might compel him to step down. Uh, but other than that, most of the justices, you know, they they are in their their 50s or or 60s uh, approaching it. And after Breyer and after Thomas, at some point, it's going to be a few years before we see any other appointments. So this is going to be the last chance, not only for Biden to influence the court, uh, but for any upcoming president to influence the court for a long while. Yes, I would like to think Justice Thomas's wife and all the shenanigans in which she is involved in would kind of maybe light a match under his self, his robe, and possibly he can head into you know the private sector and go on about his business. But hey, that's just wishful thinking. As far as everyone else, I believe it was Amy Coney Barrett's 50th just last week. And so yeah, we have a lot of years ahead of us with these justices if they plan to essentially stay on the bench throughout the period of their life. But in terms of people who are observing all of these exchanges with the courts, what would you say to them? Well, I think it's important to keep in mind not just how they might necessarily think about issues, but to understand how they think about their position in American government. Not as somebody who necessarily has to do everything or accomplish everything, but somebody who's committed to the rule of law as an idea and somebody who's willing to stand up for it, even depending on which way the partisans winds blow. Because like you say, they could be there for 30 or 40 years and we don't know what the country will look like then and we want somebody of integrity who will be there deciding the law. Excellent, thank you so much for joining us, Matt. Can you tell the viewers where they can find more information about you and follow your writing? 
Well, they can read my articles regularly at the New Republic at newrepublic.com or they can follow me at Twitter at Ford M. Fantastic, that's Matt Ford, staff writer at the New Republic covering law, democracy and the courts. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt, we really appreciate it. It was a pleasure, thank you.